It's a little early for vagina puns. I've got to warm the fuck up. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. It is. Listeners, we were talking about in Ohio, if you get vaccinated, you get entered into a million dollar lottery. And so there's five golden tickets out there. You all know how that goes. After the five golden tickets are found, all the people who find them die. So we're like, we should be so lucky. But if we do get them, I'm going to donate $100,000 to the theater and be like, peace out. That plus naming rights of the theater. I could name it like whatever I want, right? Like that's what naming rights mean. So I could, we could call it the Basics Niches Theater. We could call it the Skinny Dick Theater. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't really deserve to have a theater named after him, but he's not important in this chapter that we're covering today. He isn't. Yeah, this is Basic Snitches. <laughs> We're recording virtually today, not because either of us are sick or anything, but because we just saw each other last weekend. (laughs) Schedule is crazy. Today I have a wedding shower. I'm sorry. Today I have a baby shower. Next week I have the wedding shower. Jesus. Next week I have a wedding. And then I also have sitting for Ashley, who is going to be our next guest on the show. (laughs) And then I have a fun party tonight. I'm excited to be at a party. Everyone is fully vaccinated and we're going to drink and it's like 20s themed. So I have all the things to maybe make myself look like a flapper, except the flapper dress because no. You should go in a caftan or something. (laughs) I just have like a plain black dress, but... (laughs) Go in your potato sack. It's perfect. Everyone would be like, oh my God, so on brand. This is exactly what Tara's a flapper would look like. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Because you're a potato. This is the 101st episode. Yeah. That's kind of weird. It's a whole new era. We're celebrating by being 50 miles away from each other. Yeah, we've done this almost 100 times in person because of course there were those few episodes. With 101, we're like, fuck it. I never want to see your Again, bye. <laughs> the rest of this podcast is going to be virtual. So this is just more of a convenience thing for both of us. Tara honestly has a busy fun day. It sounds like ahead of her. Yeah. After this, I'm doing because yard work and finishing to paint the garage. Not as fun things to do. So we're doing chapter 35. Vera to Sue. Chapter 34, Winner Loser. I think this one's pretty clear in case anyone needed to be reminded. It was Priori Incantatum. I thought you were saying who the winner was. I was like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> and then <laughs> obviously. That is. Yeah, the spell is the winner, obviously. No, I mean, I think it's clear that the winner is Harry and the loser is Voldemort. You really can't do anything else. Harry held his own against this evil fucker with no nose and still made it out. So chapter 35. Oh my gosh. This might be your longest one ever, but if it, <laughs> it's if not that long after to do a long one. I mean, I guess it's this. I don't really know how complete it is, but you know. Okay, let's get into it. Chapter 35, Veritaserum. Harry, Cedric's body, and the Triwizard Cup land back at Hogwarts. Dumbledore and Fudge go to them, and, and Fudge stupidly announces that Cedric is dead. Because he's a fucking idiot. Then Harry is dragged from the scene by Mad-Eye Moody. Instead of taking the injured and traumatized child to the hospital wing, Moody takes Harry to his office where he interrogates him. Suddenly, he begins to go off on a classic villain rant, revealing his evil plan. Except he can't be a bad guy, can he? But it looks like Harry survived the graveyard only 
only to be murdered by someone he thought that he trusted. Until Dumble, McGuh, and fucking Snape barge into the office. Dumble overrides McGuh's request to take Harry to the hospital wing and instead sends her and Snape on individual quests to gather the necessary tools to wrap up this crazy mystery. While they are gone, Dumble reveals that Moody isn't really Moody and the real Moody has been held captive for months inside a cool, but maybe should be illegal magical drunk. Then he and Harry wait for the fake Moody to transform back into his real identity. And as that is happening, Snape and McGuh return just in time for Dumbledore to dramatically reveal that Moody was really Barty Crouch Jr. All along, <laughs> gasp. Should I gasp here in real life? I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's it. That's the gas. Snape had been ordered to bring Winky up from the kitchens as well as a truth potion. Dumble forces Barty Crouch Jr. to drink the mirror to serum and Winky tries desperately to stop him from spilling the whole truth to everyone in the room. Short version, Barty Crouch Jr. is not dead. The long version includes several details that prove how fucked up the Crouch family was. Also, it includes Dumbledore patiently marking the notes off of his, just in case this DA professor is actually a Death Eater we thought was dead checklist and the truth of what happened the night that Barty Crouch Sr. disappeared. So yeah, this is where the whole real Mr. Moody thing comes up. So at the beginning of the chapter, Harry arrives back home. He clicked his ruby slippers together and it is kind of chaos. It's almost slow motion feel as he's kind of looking up and everybody's reacting to seeing Cedric there and everyone kind of turns from excitement of like, oh, we have a winner. Dumbledore and stupid Fudgepacker there. Fudgepacker doesn't fucking hold his tongue and is just like, oh, Cedric is dead. And so now all ripples through the audience, which kind of like fucks up Dumbledore's plan because, you know, he needed to take care of Harry and now he's got to deal with all of this. <laughs> This is not something that I thought of when I read this, because to me, Fudge was just kind of there. I mean, yes, being a poor leader. Originally, what I picked up on was Fudge kind of being complacent in regards to Harry, almost trying to deal with Harry himself when it's not his job. So the fact that you bring up that, yeah, he really is the one just going to be like, Cedric's dead, which then ripples into the whole crowd kind of overreacting and... I had mentioned slow motion. You almost see like the slow motion image of, at least this is how I read it. There's like girls like screaming and sobbing and stuff. And I can hear you looking up and seeing all of this happen and it just being super, super overwhelming. Well, and part of that I think is definitely influenced by the feel of the movie. I think that they got the feel of the scene, right? Which we'll get into later. I don't think Fudge was doing it on purpose. He needs to be cognizant of that. You're the fucking minister of magic. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen? Dumbledore is right there. You should be deferring to Dumbledore. Yeah, well, the ministry kind of stepping over boundaries is a theme that we will absolutely see very soon. (laughs) More than we already have. Well, yeah. At this point, the most recent episode that was published was the one before the Pensieve. I can't even remember what it was called. The one where he goes into the office. Fudge is mentioning how, oh, maybe it was Madame Maxime that caused the whole thing with knocking out Crom and, and Barty Crouch Sr. disappearing. And I had said something along the lines of, well, you already kind of see that this is how the ministry thinks. And then here it is again in a moment where the ministry isn't thinking. 
if you actually look at the way that Dumbledore and Fudge are talking to Harry, you'll be all right. You'll be all right. Placating even, like that, that's what it feels like they're doing to Harry, is trying to calm him down amid all of this chaos. <laughs> I mean, Dumbledore knows information, but without really knowing everything that he's been through, I want to actually call back to our 100th episode. I did phone it in, and one of my hot takes was the insanity one. But if you look at the way everyone is talking to Harry, it does seem very much almost a good case for what if they're talking to an insanity patient? I don't have the book in front of me as usual, but some of the ways that they talk to him is very soft and almost, yeah, placating, I guess is the main word that comes to mind for me. It just continues, I think, to solidify both of them as characters. Stumbledore is pretty badass in the last couple of chapters of this book in a different kind of way that he's badass in the last couple of chapters of the next. They actually touch on it too. I think that this is just another instance where we see how ill-equipped fudge is to deal with people in general and how that kind of sets him up to fail in the next book in fact his almost bumbling mistake of throwing the entire school into chaos by saying that kind of loses dumbledore to have control over the situation because exactly what happens next, of course, is Dumbledore is probably trying to handle the situation with the entire school going out of control. Amos Diggory and probably unnamed Mrs. Diggory are coming up to see their son. We don't actually even get to see that moment. Amid all of this and Dumbledore trying to you know, contain everything the best he can, Moody just grabs Harry is like, come on, we're going. Like you said in your thing, they go up to his office. While they're doing this, there's like the clunk of his like wooden leg it's very specific how it's written and it is almost like this foreboding sound effect the model that we have seen in the past few books where we're approaching this pinnacle moment in many times where the antagonist is revealed when he's descending deeper and deeper into hogwarts and he comes not face to face with quirrell quite yet but like he sees quirrell there standing in the mirror of your said the whole diary thing down in the Chamber of Secrets with Tom Riddle. Here it's the same sort of thing. There was something about that that gave me that feeling of like, okay, it's coming up. We're actually going to reveal what has happened. Because at this point, there's all of these different details and clues throughout this whole book that don't seem to make sense. And we're about to learn what those are. I love that you said that there's this foreboding because I've said this a hundred times. I think that this is, I think, my favorite twist in the entire series. You don't see it coming because Harry literally just escaped Voldemort. What the fuck does he have to do with the last three chapters? You're not expecting that. It's really kind of cool to look at it now after rereading it a hundred times, watching it slowly unravel and like watching Harry grasp onto this. No, no, no. Like this can't be a bad person. Been through enough shit tonight. This cannot be happening. (laughs) He's not thinking, okay, he he got out of it. It's it's over. He's back home. Yes, Cedric is dead. Voldemort is back. But he's not expecting any of this to happen. If you have read the other books, there is somewhat of an understanding that once you get to the end, all will be revealed. For the most part, all loose ties will kind of be completed. Because, you know, you're more familiar with movies than you are the books. Reading it this time around... Because you asked a lot of questions through this read. You're like, what about this? Did you feel satisfied actually reading it this chapter then? 
Yes, I would say I did. This is definitely one of my favorite chapters in the book. We'll get into what our favorite chapters are, of course, in our recap, which is coming up soon. But also some of this really helped because all those questions ensured that my details were organized throughout. (laughs) Because what I said about this book, and we're going to continue to get this with the next three, is that this is where there's so many details. There's so many new people. Keeping them all in line and asking those questions is important. But you also answered some of those questions for me. It was kind of satisfying to see the holes in our conversation get kind of patched up and being able to see the full picture. Prior to when Moody does kind of reveal that he's the bad guy, there's one little tiny detail that I thought was kind of interesting because at this point, we've known who Moody actually is. Right. You start to see that tension building with the clunking and everything, but then Moody offers him a drink to kind of like calm his nerves. And as I was reading this, I was like, wait a minute, what is Moody giving him? He's not very trustworthy. This is like the big moment. But I think what it probably was, uh, obviously it was something that perked him up and made him more like aware of his surroundings. He reveals that he's about to kill Harry for Voldemort, which first of all, big mistake, buddy, because in that graveyard, Voldemort wanted to do it himself. He ain't going to be happy if you do it for it. You know what I mean? But on top of that, I think he gave him the drink so that he was very, very aware of everything before he killed him. Like taking the enjoyment out of revealing all this stuff to his victim. And then when he does it, Harry is completely aware as he's being Avada Kedavra. I was definitely like, oh, what did he give him? Yeah, it's probably just to wake him up a little bit. We established this, I think, too, when we talked about the Death Eaters chapter, how important it is for the villain to be able to reveal everything and to have it be like heard and understood because they like thrive on believing that they're clever. It's like a serial killer kind of getting joy out of seeing like himself being covered in the media, for example. He's being revealed to the world in this way that is still not apparent, I suppose, to other people that is. And this is a secret that he's been keeping for an entire year. year. Well, and he does reveal a little bit more information when Harry is trying to make some sense of what he said. And Harry remembers, oh, there's a Death Eater at Hogwarts. And he needed to tell Dumbledore that. And so he's going to tell Moody because he trusts Moody. And he's like, oh, I know who the Death Eater is. And then Harry is assuming he's talking about Karkarov. They get through that discussion. The fact that Karkarov left, first of all, because he's a fucking coward. But he's not the one who put Harry's name in the Goblet of Fire. And that kind of turns it for us. Where he goes, no, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so sudden, too. Like, Whoa, what the fuck? Just, he just throws it right out there. <laughs> surprise this is what you wanted to know all year it was the beach and then harry's like no no can't be you no (laughs) obviously moody was like walking around the maze so they could you know stun flur and all that shit can you almost imagine somehow moody is aware of karkaroff kind of all of a sudden running and then him realizing ah this means that voldemort is back he's probably getting excited and stuff then for moody to see when harry returns that harry is actually not the dead one it makes me wonder like what was going through his head like wow i worked on this entire plan all year long (laughs) and it's failed now i mean i think that's what it is that's why he's right there he's like no i gotta fucking figure this out i think also some of that like serial killerishness too i think that's why it's so abrupt and it kind of like spills out because I also felt like, even though we talked about the whole villain thing of them revealing their cards, it does feel like he's saying it too early. 
And he's doing it out of pride and out of wanting to show how clever he is and all of that. Because, of course, while he's saying all of this stuff, the faux glass is going crazy. You had mentioned this when we talked about the faux glass. It's really, really cool. And I feel like, if anything, Moody's not seeing it. I don't know if... Harry seeing the faux glass kind of go crazy was reassuring or giving him some bit of hope until the door actually blasts open. I feel like it's probably something that he isn't maybe in the right mindset to appreciate. I think it's Moody that teaches them a little bit about faux glass. He knows what it is, but it's also one of those things where like, yeah, you might know what it is, but just look at what's going on around him. Mm -hmm. I'm not certain that he would be aware enough or able to focus enough on it to realize that it is a comfort for him. The cool thing about the faux glass is that it shows Snape as an enemy. That says a lot more about Snape's story Mm -hmm. that we get to get into in the next couple books. And this is where it gets introduced, just in this tiny way. So I think that's kind of fascinating. I think so too. It confirms things that have been said by Dumbledore in this book, certainly, but even in the last book a little bit, like I think you start to sort of see that while his actions do not 100%, in fact, in sometimes it's like 40% <laughs> a match up with his intentions. Right. The faux glass can tell. Obviously this magic item knows his actual real intentions. So that's a cool thing to bring up. But before we even get to the faux glass revealing everything... Him telling his plot about how he stunned Fleur and he used Imperial on Crumb, that's a very satisfying thing, I think, for me, just to for everyone to be reminded that Crumb and Fleur are not inferior wizards. Crumb would never intentionally hurt Cedric. And also it says a lot about Harry and Cedric because the plan was for Cedric also to be taken out and Cedric got past Moody too. So it shows that Cedric really was a fantastic wizard. Yeah. In this pinnacle moment and everything that Barty Crouch Jr. has done to further his entire trajectory, he's still getting like stage fright. Or like some nervousness where he's not as perfect. I'm not saying that to like diminish what Cedric did in getting past him. Dumbledore even says once he's about to turn him back into his real self, something along the lines of, I have a feeling that he probably wasn't as focused on drinking the polyjuice potion on the hour every hour. Right. He underestimated a lot of people, you know? He even admits that, though, when he talks about how he stages the whole thing with McGonagall for Dobby to overhear. He played the long fucking game on that goddamn gillyweed, giving Neville that book the first day of the year, basically, or early on in the year. Yeah, I have a note on that, actually. This was a mistake, I think. He made up for it with the whole McGonagall conversation. Harry doesn't want to be in this competition to begin with. And he's gotten a lot of pressure from his peers and the whole Potter Stink stuff. He didn't even really get a lot of backing until he actually got through the first task. And I think some of that is still wearing on him, even though he's in the Gryffindor common room, like there is this peer pressure thing. More recently, even we were both talking about how overwhelmed these kids are. They have like no free time. I think Moody underestimates the thought of Harry asking everybody about this. I agree with you. And I also, though, find it frustrating that he blames it on Harry's pride, which isn't 100% incorrect. But at the same time, he doesn't take into consideration that we're all like that. Human beings are like that. Like, I am not going to share my flaws with just anyone. Why would he ask anyone and everyone? 
he's being so ridiculed and treated like shit over this thing even to his other friends like he doesn't say anything to fred and george or Ginny, when Cedric is like, how are you coming along with that egg? He doesn't flat out go, yeah, I haven't fucking figured it out because I'm an idiot. He doesn't even reveal that to Cedric. Like, Yeah, that's a good point too. He, Ron and Hermione are his best friends. Those are the only people he's going to confide in. Calm down, Barty Crouch Jr. I'm also not completely certain like he would go to talk to Neville because it has not been super established quite quite yet i mean there's been little hints here and there that neville is super strong at herbology perhaps it's been hinted that he likes it i mean you touched on it too why would he go to everybody in the common room being like i need your help i need your help i need your help because of everything we've mentioned i think the egg thing is like the perfect example of that too he was telling hermione and ron that he had his egg figured out <laughs> that he was yeah, working on he was you know then he finally had to cape why is harry supposed to assume that the answer is a plant everyone else did something else anyway and if he did yeah. he talked to professor sprout not neville I've talked about this this entire season. I got problems with this contract because it was about how like you can't ask help and stuff. So that right there, I mean, (laughs) Harry's not by any means a rule abider. Honestly, almost every instance of him getting help was, I mean, Moody even says it was forced upon him. He told Hagrid to go show him the dragons, which I don't know. I feel like that's something that could have maybe more organically happened because it's Hagrid. But he also says the thing he told Cedric about the egg. And then he says the quote, decent people are so easy to manipulate. That quote like lifted off the page to me. So like he is kind of forcing this help on him, which is interesting because then Ludo Bagman, who actually has not been like at the forefront lately like as i was reading all about it it made me think of how he cornered harry before the dragon task and all of that it's like ew it was kind of weird but anytime that he is actually looking for some sort of assistance he's really not digging for it hermione and ron are the only people who do help him but like you said like those are the people he's closest with watching him unravel through this whole thing even prior to dumbledore and the others coming in it is fascinating So then finally, as he reveals all this stuff, Harry is like fumbling for his wand to protect himself. I really appreciate that Harry is like, well, this is my last shot. Like he goes for it. (laughs) Did it to Voldemort? I'll do it to you, bitch. The way it's written, it almost feels like Harry does stun him. But of course, I think what it really is is them breaking through the door. Yeah, I believe that's what it is too. I'm really cheering for Harry because he's like, well, this is all I've got. I'm going for it. McGonagall has one line here about like, we need to take him to the hospital wing. And the way that it's written is extremely motherly because it talks about like the quality of her voice or something and her being like on the verge of tears or something of that nature. I mean, this Um, is a very crazy, awful moment. mm -hmm. One of the students is dead. This is a lot. Everything considered, you know, the ghoul is kind of in chaos. Chaos is the special word of this episode. Scream every time you hear the word chaos, listeners. Not to shit on the other professors at Hogwarts, because we all know they're fantastic. I feel like we sent the three most powerful wizards at Hogwarts currently up to take care of the situation. We know Snape is really talented and we know McGonagall is like the baddest of all the asses, but like Dumble is the big guy. He couldn't handle this on his own? What? Or he couldn't bring other teachers to come with him? It sort of makes sense because it goes into actually after McGonagall. It does make sense. I just was like, wow, we're just going with 
with the the big guys. I mean, that is very true. I feel like perhaps instead of those, it could have been anybody. What it says in there is, in so many words, Harry realized like, oh, wow, this is where Dumbledore becomes a badass. Like, he's no more like the silly Mm -hmm. man. This is why like Voldemort is terrified of him and him alone. But McGonagall says that thing and Dumbledore's like, absolutely not. He needs to sit here and hear this. This is a bit of a hint of what Harry is being groomed for. He needs to know all these details and understand them for what's going to come later. And so Snape being there also sort of makes sense because anytime Snape is there, it's almost like a hint of like, this is important to the whole overarching thing. And of course, McGonagall is the head of his house. Yeah. No, those are the correct people there. I just find it very amusing. that It's, it, it's very true. I they think really are like probably the best, you know. It is a little bit weird in that it would have been nice for, let's say maybe McGonagall is the one to stay behind because Snape would not do this well. And she's deputy headmistress, you know, vice principal to like try to get the whole school under control. Because right now, for all we know, Fudge is out there waving his arms around trying to get people to calm down and that ain't working. I've decided that Professor Flitwick and Professor Sprout have handled it beautifully. Especially Sprout. Cedric was a part of her house. Mm -hmm. Like she probably has it under control. Flitwick's got the entire student body under control. Tiny little Flitwick. Yeah. Sprout's handling the diggeries and it's just amazing because the two of them are so fucking underrated and they're actually out there rocking it. Flitwick is used to like controlling a whole group of people with a little stick because he's the choir director. That's true. Little sticks in the basic snitches universe mean so many different things now. (laughs) Wands, conductor baton, dicks. Controlling with his little wand is one of the Olivia's that said. So after they burst through, Dumbledore says that thing like, Harry needs to stay. Hey, go on a scavenger hunt, you two. It's for real like a scavenger hunt. Go find these weird things, okay? He opens up that magical chest. Yes. I love that chest. You're probably right. Maybe it should be illegal. It probably should be, but I still want it. I want it too. Shit. That would be really, really handy, I think. Right? Um, Then there's the real Mad-Eye Moody. The real, real Mad-Eye Moody. Yeah. And he's, he's looking like skinny time. dick with hair removed and his leg removed and his eye removed. It's like operation over here. This poor guy. That sounds like the worst year of his life. Mm-hmm. Curious curse just, just laying there. So when McGonagall and Snape come back, good thing that Snape did not use that Viridis serum earlier. That would have been a bad use on this potion. But speaking of potions being outlawed and just things in general, this freaking amazing, cool chest. Viridis serum was something that we talked about earlier about like, this should probably not be legal. I'm sure we're going to get into how love potions maybe could be regulated. After this book, Polyjuice potion should be illegal too. Obviously he uses it to become a professor at Hogwarts and throw this entire thing into action but once he starts speaking the truth the first thing is how he escaped from azkaban and this family is obsessed with polyjuice potion they they really are jeez oh man (laughs) this was one of the big gaps for me is how he escaped so that was maybe one of my biggest surprises in this chapter is that they swapped mrs crouch because she was probably dying you know and so she went in there and Barty Crouch Jr. went out and I'm like, ministry official at the very top. What the fuck are you doing? That was major for me. This family already 
is very fucked up to me. The fact that he did this for his wife because he loved her so much and didn't love his son. It's so unbalanced and upsetting for me, I guess. I'm just really bothered by it. You worked so hard to put people in Azkaban and your wife's dying wish is to release your son, who you hate because you want to make her happy because you clearly love her more than common sense. That's literally the beginning of it all. Crouch's weakness. You looked at it from Senior's point of view. I also was looking at it from Mrs. Crouch's point of view. Okay, it's your dying wish to get your son out of Azkaban. And it's clear that she does not believe that he's a bad guy. Even when we go back and look at the Pensieve chapter and how she was sobbing and everything and she wasn't doing super well, it's like she thinks that this is all a fake. Then it goes back to Party Crouch Senior where like, you do know if he hates his son this much, I would think that right. he is pretty well, he's very obsessed with putting away dark wizards. So and that was kind of crazy to me. Mrs. Crouch, she must have been really close to death because she had to keep drinking that Polly Joe's potion. And for an entire year at the school, Barty Crouch Jr. has to be going into this chest and plucking hairs out of Moody. Well, I think they said that she died two weeks later or... That's still a lot, I feel like. You can carry a bunch of your son's hairs for two weeks and that's enough? I don't know. There's also something unsettling. The fact that she... Okay, so if you die when you're in Polyjuice Potion, you continue to have that form of that person. Who knows? Maybe they wrapped her in a sheet and then then look at her and just buried her. But there's something unsettling to the fact that Mrs. Crouch is sitting there like in an Azkaban mass grave and her real grave is empty. Like, I don't know. There's something about that that feels really, really gross to me. No, that's really uncomfortable. I mean, Polyjuice Potion is such a violation of privacy and rights he's like well you know i might as well use the thing i used to get out of azkaban i'm just gonna apologies potion it up continue to use it all year well and then the whole story how bertha jorkins really gets tangled up in this yeah i felt more for bertha too i don't know what was so urgent where she had to go to crouch's house because to me you know it's a department at the ministry that perhaps crouch is not completely overseeing or something in my mind So what was so urgent that you had to go to the house? A lot of the stuff in this chapter, along the sides of like feeling more for Bertha. Memory wiped like that? That's another big thing, is the use of the unforgivable curses, in particular Imperio, by the Crouch family. Barty Crouch is constantly under Imperio. They talk about him constantly trying to fight it off. He's always got to be under this invisibility cloak. And Winky's role in this, now Winky is trying to persuade Barty Crouch Sr. even more. Mrs. Crouch didn't die so that he could just live a life of captivity. Please, please let him go to the fucking Quidditch World Cup and all of that. I feel like Winky is sort of stepping boundaries here a little bit too. Oh yeah, absolutely. This shows really just like how deeply she was embedded into this family. And also her truest loyalties actually lied with Mrs. Crouch. Yeah. She didn't ever have a chance to have any true loyalty to Barty Jr. until that's who she was forced to spend all of her time with. Thinking about Barty Crouch Jr., you were talking about how he had to fight off the Imperius curse. And how literally he spends an entire lesson at Hogwarts teaching them how to fight off the Imperius curse. Yeah, exactly. And that should maybe have been a red flag, Dumbledore. Yeah. I found, too, that Winky is not all that innocent either. The sloppiness of Bertha Jorkins coming into the house 
Winky basically saying Master isn't here. And then she goes and talks to Barty Crouch Jr. Why didn't you just send her away, Winky? Or just take the papers and be like, he'll handle it later. That was a major misstep. If that hadn't happened, Voldemort wouldn't have known that Barty Crouch Jr. was even around. Unfortunately, Bertha would probably have been captured and probably just killed because that's just where her trajectory went. But they wouldn't have gotten as much information. They would have known, okay, well, the Triwizard Tournament is happening this year, but that's about it. And then her loyalty to Mrs. Crouch and trying to give Barty Crouch Jr. a little bit more freedom Um, between your dying wife and now this house elf, Barty Crouch Sr., you are really persuadable. It shows that this harsh, firm facade that is built up into this entire book is just that. It's just a facade. If like your house elf can persuade you to take your son that you smuggled out of Azkaban and he is guilty to a public event. He reveals he stole Harry's wand and they go back to the tent and then he sees all these posers. <laughs> That's literally what I wrote down. These posers <laughs> torching muggles and oh. He's like, oh, y'all are posers, man. You none, you of you, <laughs> none of you have actually gone to Azkaban. You don't know what it's like. You're just trying to like be like, haha, I'm bad. Let's go fuck with these muggles. Let me really scare you off. The whole thing that happens where this is, again, where Winky is a little bit wrong. Like, why bind him to you and then take him into the woods? If that's the type of magic that a house elf can do, I feel like there were probably better ways for her to put him under control. Then even when he, like, shoots that off into the sky and then both of them kind of get stunned, then Barty Crouch Sr. has to do damage control. He finds Barty Crouch Jr. stunned in, like, the tall grass or whatever. I do kind of understand between Winky persuading him to take him to the Quidditch World Cup. And then, I mean, everybody's guilty. All three of them are. It's it's hard to say like, oh, if Winky hadn't done this, blah, blah, blah. Barty Crouch Jr. is the one who stole the wand. You're the one who allowed him to come to the Quidditch World Cup. I mean, I think it helps us understand a bit better why he dismissed Winky. Oh, absolutely. I even wrote, like, I now see why even more she was fired. From the view that we saw, it was cruel. And I do sort of still think it's sort of cruel. So cruel. Bitch, you're the one who listened to her. And so, like, later when we see her in the Hogwarts kitchens and she's, like, a blubbering mess, she's also probably grappling with all these mistakes that she made, too, that led up to all of this stuff. Yeah. It's a heavy backstory. It's well done in the chapter, but, like, it's not easy to just think of all of this, you know? As the book is progressing, I don't think you expect your explanation to look like this. No, I don't think so either. Looking at timeline too, they, as in the bad guys, acted very, very quick. It makes sense reading it that Voldemort would learn that Barty Crouch Jr. is a thing after the Triwizard Tournament. But for some reason, when I was reading it earlier, I feel like I had thought that Voldemort knew about Barty Crouch Jr., that they were connected or something prior to the tournament. That's something else that the movie has fucked up. I think that's totally right. And so there's the end of the summer, end-ish of the summer. They go to the Quidditch World Cup. All this shit happens. Then Harry goes back to the Weasley's house. And I think that's why it's important for them to go back because then that is where Arthur had to work at the ministry over time because the whole Moody and the dustbins thing happened. Oh man, we have so many new band titles, but Moody and the Dustbins. 
Moody in the dustbin, for real. Uh. <laughs> Meanwhile, this is the time period that Barty Crouch Jr. was telling us about, where he only had his father to hold him now, not Winky. And yeah. he fights against his father and turns the tables on him. And then Voldemort comes to get him. They even, I think, said, you know, during the Quidditch World Cup, like, where the fuck is Bertha? Bertha's missing. But that point, it's almost like this dark mark is being shot off and they caught Bertha and she's being tortured. So then after the Quidditch World Cup, that then gives them like the perfect opportunity to meet. And so then when they get to Hogwarts, obviously by that point, Barty Crouch Jr. is now moody. And Crouch is under the Imperious Curse. Right after Harry gets picked and they go into that antechamber and Crouch is all like gloomy and stuff. He's under the Imperious Curse. So it does make a little bit more sense. But I was like, wow, that is not a lot of time. That's like a matter of weeks to orchestrate Mm -hmm. this entire thing. Which, okay, wow, that's some solid planning. Voldemort and Skinny Dick and Brody Crouch Jr. But you know, Skinny Dick didn't do any of that planning. He's not. No, no, he's worthless. The only thing that is kind of left open in this chapter, I think, and this is my question to you. Near the end, Barty Crouch Jr. says that he transfigured his father into a bone. Dick jokes aside, I'm assuming that that is why McGonagall went go get Fang. He doesn't send McGonagall to get Fang. He sends McGonagall to get Sirius and take Sirius up to the hospital wing. Oh, oh my God. Because it's the big black dog sitting in the pumpkin patch. And we know that is Sirius in dog form. Yeah, that's true. And he says, take him to my office and tell him I'll I'll meet him there. And McGonagall's like, sure, I'd love to tell animals that you'll be along. I'd love to take your animal guest to your office and say he'll be right with you. Okay, that's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of glad it wasn't what I thought it was. I read dog, pumpkin patch, it's bang, boom. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting route to think, though. It also just goes to show just how much, after everything, Barty Crouch Sr. set into motion. That's where it is. He's yeah. just a bone buried in the Forbidden Forest. So now that makes me think of both of his parents. One of them is buried in Azkaban and her actual grave is empty. And then the other one is just turned into a bone in the freaking woods. This is a crazy, tragic story. This family. Like Um, you said earlier, I mean, this whole series about like a mother's love. With Harry, we see it in a really positive light. And in this case, we show how like, sometimes a mother's love ain't so good. This is too much. Like we went too far on this. Also, this fucker, now he's under various serums, doesn't really have a choice. He has now outed Harry's map. And now oh, yeah. Snape and McGonagall are the two people he does not want to know he owns yeah. this map. And guess what? Now they know. Yeah, well, especially <laughs> to Snape. Because right? Snape even grabbed Snape it from him in the last book. Snape has been so fucking suspicious since day one, but also McGonagall, you probably didn't want to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Thanks, Barty Crouch Jr. Fuck, okay. Mary kill. Usually I like the things to kind of align with the theme of the chapter, but I was like, you know what? This is heavy enough. I was going to do like three things that we see that Barty Crouch has done and fuck, Mary and kill those, but we're not going to do that. Also, we're a little bit fuck, Mary killed out after the last episode. So we're going to fuck, Mary and kill the three things that we see that are in that magic chest. Because that magic chest is the star of this chapter with everything that goes on. So fuck, Mary kill a pile of spell books, a broken sneakoscope, parchment, quills, and the invisibility cloak, and the real Mr. Moody. I'm going to marry the real Mr. Moody. (laughs) 
I feel like after everything he's been through, like it's a little hard to kill him. And he's probably not in the best like shape for fucking. So Yeah. And I'm sure like once he's feeling better, he's gonna teach me all kinds of cool stuff and we can be badass wizards together. So Okay, and then what were the other two options? A pile of spell books and a broken sneakoscope, parchment, quills, and invisibility cloak. I'm gonna fuck that drawer. That sounds like fun. You're gonna fuck the drawer with the parchment quills, etc. Yeah, why not? There's bound to be something fun happening there. You're killing spell books? Yeah, I'm gonna kill the spell books. Here's why, because I married Moody and we probably have all the spell books we need. Okay, that's fair. Although, <laughs> look behind me on Zoom. We, I'm recording from my library, obviously. Well, first of all, yes, I'm also marrying Moody. <laughs> <laughs> Based on what I said a couple minutes ago, he's been through enough. He needs somebody to nurse him back to hell. So I'm marrying him. I'm gonna fuck the spell books, which also are probably marryable because I love books. And I know you do. If those are Barty Crouch Jr.'s spell books, or maybe they're Moody spell books, who knows? There's probably some good shit in there. I'm gonna kill the other one because it's parchment and quills, which are pretty normal. A broken sneakoscope, so it doesn't really mean anything to me. And an invisibility cloak, which, okay, that's kind of cool. But throughout this series, I get a feeling that you could probably go to a merchant and get one. The only person who has the best invisibility cloak is Harry Potter. I mean, I think that invisibility cloaks are not easy to come by and they're probably not cheap, but you're right. They're something you can get. But and they fade know. over time too, except for Harry's. Yeah. And he's been using this for quite a while now, ever since he escaped Azkaban. So it might be like near the end of its shelf life. If anyone knows the shelf life of an invisibility cloak, let us know. And listeners, if you want to do that other fuck, Mary kill, contact us at basicsmistressofgmail.com because I'm not going to do it. So, so let's start when he comes back with the port key and the big thing here being Amos Diggory running onto the field and just wailing. It's heart-wrenching. I'm terrible because I can't think of the actor who plays Amos Diggory. He is very beautiful in that scene. You're like, oh man, this really hurt. Also, I want to give props to Daniel Radcliffe in that scene. I think that he really portrays the angst of the moment really well. I said this early in the episode, this part of the scene, the mood is so correct. I think so too. This is controversial because this movie is garbage, but in the book, the chaos that is happening, it seems almost like this crowd is like out of control. Everyone is like silent and shocked. And I think that is more realistic, honestly. Oh yeah, you mean in the movie? Yeah. yeah in the movie. I agree with that. What I despise about the moment is we took the time to include the actor who plays Fudge Packer in the movies, but we don't get him in that scene. We don't get Mrs. Dickery. Oh, we don't get her at all. Yeah. A travesty, mostly because women actors getting opportunities. Please and thank you. I do love the way that they pan the audience. Cho stands out. McGonagall stands out in that scene. Their silent shock. It's appropriately devastating. Then... It gets weird. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. So when I was reading the book, I was kind of waiting for the moment where, you know, Harry is like vomiting up all this information to Moody. Moody says something about who else was in the graveyard. Harry just keeps on filling the tea. Yeah. It was this, this, this. And then he like paused and he was like, I never said it was a graveyard, you stupid bitch. 
Yeah. I was kind of waiting for that moment, but in the book, obviously, once again, we talked about the realisticness of the last scene in the movie, which I do appreciate. Here, I think Harry is way too eager to give out this information. The fact that in the book, it is very like hazy and stuff until Moody slash Barty Crouch Jr. gives him that drink that kind of makes him wake up a little bit. There's no moment in the movie where Dumbledore is like, Harry, stay here. And then you see Moody take him away. Yeah, you just see Moody take important. him away. Harry's giving him the information and he's asking him the questions. But Harry is physically incapable of doing things in the movie as he is in the book. He's traumatized and injured in the book. In the movie, he's traumatized. And like I said before, I think Dan is doing a great job acting the scene but there's a different level of focus needed when the person you're trying to get information out of is physically exhausted on top of everything else again we're talking about a child that's not there so him getting that information out of him is already easier the way that they do it in the movie i'm not terribly mad at him slipping up and being like who's in the graveyard or whatever because harry is more aware but yeah, i don't and it's like clever it's i will not say that right because I want the whole story from Barty Crouch Jr. Right. It doesn't matter because so much of it's cut out of the movie. So who gives a shit? Yeah, I almost can't even remember what is included and what isn't. A lot of this stuff is tit for tat because we don't learn the whole thing about how he got out of Azkaban at all. That's like number one. Why the fuck are you here? That's cut out. None of the Bertha stuff is really talked about. I think I had mentioned in a previous episode at the very beginning of the movie when they're in the house with Frank Bryce, they mentioned Bertha just a little bit, but otherwise none of that. So then we do learn that he's the one who put the name in the Goblet of Fire, but there's very little details. For example, things go according to plan for him with the second task because in the movie, Neville gives him the Gillyweed. It's so disappointing. And I guess it doesn't really matter at the end because they open up at the very beginning of the movie and reveal everything anyways. The other problem is, is that it kills the buildup of Barty Crouch Jr. in total. I've obviously already complained about the first scene of the movie showing that Barty Crouch Jr. is there. Whereas in the book, we get this full family history, you get all this information. So you don't need him to be there showing off in the beginning of the movie because it changes the whole timeline that we just went over that barty crouch jr was still under the imperious curse at the quidditch world cup he did not know voldemort was looking for him there was no barty crouch voldemort connection at that point of the story and the movie completely ignored that so it just the timeline is already so whacked out that when you get to this scene it's not going to be satisfying no matter what. Actually, I have to say the way you described it is probably the most disappointing thing about it is that the timeline is completely fucked up. Yeah, I mean, it shows him like conspiracying with Voldemort and Skinny Dick. And then all of a sudden he is at the Quidditch World Cup. But rather than him being under supervision, because Winky obviously isn't in the movie either. It's just like, oh yeah, there's a whole bunch of Death Eaters. They're burning shit. We've talked about, I think, I mean, this was ages ago at this point, uh, at the Quidditch World Cup. We even talked about how the campground is completely obliterated. In the book, it isn't that at all. It's just them torturing the muggles. So it feels like it was Barty Crouch just fucking around. Oh, here's a great big event. Let's do some terrorism. I'm going to shoot this into the sky. It makes no sense. His entire motive for putting it in the sky is 
very different than how it is in the book. We've talked this entire book too about how smart Barty Crouch Jr. is in the book. In the movie, because of all of this and how his timeline and his storyline is completely ignored, it makes him seem even way stupider. Like, yeah. So as I say, a word that doesn't exist, he, it makes him seem more stupid. There we go. <laughs> stupider is fine because that's how ridiculous this movie is. Yeah. Hey, it's episode 101. We got to start getting our shit together somehow. <laughs> so we can't say words like stupider anymore. Sorry. No, that's right. Sorry. We're going to be more proper. From now on. Uh, this is such a disappointing moment in the movie. More than some of the other stuff, you know, I talked <laughs> in the last episode, he fucked, married and killed the maze of nothing and built running down the hallway and the stupid bird dance. But this is just horrible that this wonderful revelation of everything is completely missed. So yeah, I think that that's really the biggest disappointment. This is some of the cleverest writing of this series that was not even glossed over. It was like, oh, this doesn't fucking matter. For the purpose of the movie, like the way that the scene goes and the way the actors navigate through all the confessions and stuff are fine. McGonagall and Snape are just there. Snape is ready with the Veritaserum. He's like, here you go, take this. And he just like, dumps it in his mouth. Like, I've been waiting for that time where I could give it to Potter, but I guess this is a better option. He carries it around and he's like, I can't wait till I can give this to Potter. Oh, you know, this guy probably needs it here, Dumbledore. Like, what? Yeah. It's a fail. I could maybe give it a D. Because I do agree with you that before they go up into Moody's office, I like the movie's approach, but... I do. I don't necessarily like it better than the book because obviously there are things missing, but I think that the mood is correct and the feelings are correct and cheers to Amos and Harry and their respective actors in that scene. The mood is correct. The Moody is not. First, let's focus on these six people. And they're all positive points. 50 to Dumbledore because, you know, he comes in, he saves the day. Uh, Harry does not die. But also Dumbledore obviously knows all of this information. This is where Harry realized, wow, Dumbledore really is a badass, so on and so forth. Plus 10 also to McGonagall. And I'm also giving plus 10 to Snape. I mean, he's still bottom tier because he's a horrible person throughout the rest of this book. But it lifts him a little bit up just simply because the fact that both of them are in the faux glass, Snape in particular, McGonagall also for her motherliness, plus 10 to both Amos and Mrs. Diggory because Mrs. Diggory is not in the movie and both of them are his parents. So we barely see them in the book. We have that emotional moment in the movie. Mrs. Diggory is not there for it, but I feel like we need to recognize her. And I'm also going to give plus 10 to Bertha. And I've given her points throughout this entire book, even though she's not even there. But in here, it really made me feel like what an innocent she was and how she was completely wrong place, wrong time through this entire thing. And now she's a horcrux. (laughs) Uh, Probably a final plus 10 to her because I can't imagine me giving her more. Now we're going to focus on the Crouch family. Oh, man. So first, negative 10 to Mrs. Crouch because it starts there. It just does. We kind of know who Crouch is, or at least who Crouch was before this book, in that he was this respected, almost feared man who was very adamant about locking up dark wizards to the point of he was scary and violent. And he was so persuaded to do something completely 
wrong that he knows is wrong it starts with her so negative 10 to her negative 150 to barty crouch jr because obviously he did all of this i mean he's the villain of this book he's the primary villain throughout the entire like stretch of the book i mean voldemort's the villain in the book but you know what i mean but ultimately i'm taking negative 200 from barty crouch senior because the way that he portrays himself and then what he does behind closed doors are so opposite ends of the spectrum Yes, it starts with Mrs. Crouch persuading you. And then you being sloppy with Barty Crouch Jr. And yes, Winky is to be blamed a little bit with how she handles it. There's all these missteps. So while it starts with Mrs. Crouch, and yes, it ends with Barty Crouch Jr., all the shit in the middle is because of Barty Crouch Sr., I was just hit so hard with how he ultimately is a victim. None of this would have happened if he just stayed firm like he usually does. And then the last one is Winky. I consider taking away points from her because I do see a lot of areas where she's guilty. I do see why she was fired. Ultimately, though, she is a house elf. She's very different. That is something that we've talked about at length throughout this book, especially in regards to Spew and Hermione. Just like Bertha Jorkins, I gave her points for being an innocent. Winky isn't innocent. And in the moments, she did do what she thought was best or she made mistakes. And like humans make mistakes. So why can't a house elf make mistakes? And she is such a mess and she has been such a mess this entire book. Instead of actually taking away points, I gave her only five. I imagine if I didn't pick up on all of those areas where she is guilty, she probably would have lost a lot of points too. That was probably my longest points explanation ever. (laughs) But I think it's very important to go through them, especially all these negative points with the Crouch family. Episode 101, I put thought into things this time. No, I get it. Next time, we will be discussing chapter 36, Parting of the Ways. The Parting of the Ways. Okay, cool. Special guest, Ashley Frederick Brubaker. I will finally get to drink wine out of her hands. (laughs) I'm very excited because she's going to be there, right? It'll be. Yeah, she's going to be there. Tell her to wash her hands. I, I think she knows to do that. She has a toddler. But I'm drinking out of them. We've been talking about this. One of the things of this episode is things we have been talking about this entire time. And I'm finally going to get my chance. Heck yeah. We'll see you next time, guys. Yeah. Don't forget to lay out the tarp too, because that's going to get messy. You got it. Basic Snitches is recorded and produced by Adam Bowers and Tara Corkery. Edited by me, Adam Bowers. And published by me, Tara Corkery, and available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. Please review and rate us five stars on your app of choice. And be sure to share us to all of your other friends who love Harry Potter and getting drunk. Oh, don't forget to follow us on social media. Sometimes I update that. Basic Snitches on Instagram. Also, we have a Facebook page. And email us anything you want to or specifically answers to our questions on our segments. BasicSnitches at gmail.com. But don't send us dick pics, please. That's nasty. But do send us liquor. Thanks. Yeah. Alohomora. Oh, now people can get into your house. They're on their toe. But they don't matter because now you're a water goblin. Bye. Bye.